Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed during this podcast episode are those of the co-hosting guests and not their sponsoring institutions. Now, let's start the show. Hello, Detroit and the world. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Zoom platform in partnership with the Audio Wave Network Studios inside the Stoudemire Wellness Hub, sponsored by the Ford Foundation. And we're also a content partner to Bridge Detroit. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms as we drop a new episode every week, so be sure to turn on those notifications. In 2018, Michigan voters elected to transfer the power of drawing the the state's congressional and legislative districts from the state legislature to an independent citizens redistricting commission. The measure was known as Prop 2, and since then, a bipartisan commission of 13 citizens were selected through an application process to become redistricting commissioners. On December 28th, the commission voted to adopt new legislative and congressional maps for the state. Some say that Democrats now have a competitive advantage to knocking off the Republican majority. Critics in the community and the legislature say that the new maps marginalize the power of Black voters in Detroit. Here to talk about this whirlwind of a process, our state senator, Adam Holier, the chair of the Democratic I'm sorry, the Detroit delegation in the State House, Tanisha Yancey, and Capitol reporter for Rich Michigan, Sergio Martinez Beltran. Adam, Tanisha, and Sergio, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Super excited to be here. Yes, we are excited to have you all. And before we get into all of the redistricting process, let's do a quick check-in, and um, I'm going to ask everybody how the new year is finding each of you. Uh, Donna, how's this new year, 2022, <laughs> finding you? Well, you know, listen, um, I got some rest and I don't have COVID, so, you know, <laughs> that's a good thing. I spent, you know, two weeks, the entire two weeks on a COVID scare. Um, my kid's stepmother had it or and she told them and it was like, okay, everything got disrupted. Um, so I um, had all kinds of imaginary symptoms. I know a lot of people also deal with that. Um, you know, if you have a sore throat, if you have a sniffle, it's like, is this COVID-19? Is this it? And I started imagining everything, but it didn't happen to me. Sadly, it happened to many, many people. And um, we actually lost somebody who works inside of our building. So although it's good news for me and my family, I'm also just very conscious of the amount of trauma that is experienced in our community. And I'm hopeful that people will take, you know, steps to keep themselves and their families safe. Got it. How about you? Yeah, I'm doing well. I am. Um, yeah, it's back back to life, back to reality. But those intentions that we said in the last episode are still front of mind for me. So I'm doing all right, trying to be as zen as possible. <laughs> Tanisha, Happy New Year. How does the day find you? How does the new year find you? Happy New 
year. Um, I, I actually escaped COVID for, I didn't bring the new year in with COVID. I definitely brought Christmas in with it. Um, wasn't so bad. I do realize that I was blessed um, to have very, very minimal symptoms, but um, the new year has been great. I'm looking forward to new, new opportunities that's coming my way. All right. One of our habitual guests, uh, probably an unofficial co-host of Authentically Detroit, State Senator Adam Olier. How's the new year finding you, sir? You know, I like that co-host title, right? Like I, I could get I could get you. <laughs> Don't get excited. Don't get excited. <laughs> I get excited about everything. You can't you can't find a thing I'm not gonna be excited about. Uh, Just ask your wife, right? Yeah, 100 <laughs> right? Like I, I'm very easy to I'm very easy to please. Uh but you know, the new year is good. You know, like everybody, I'm trying to Starting a new way. My daughter and I got the chance to spend a lot of time together. And so I've seen Encanto maybe 70 times. If you haven't seen it, wonderful movie. But if you have a little kid in your household, you've seen it already. Uh, and, you know, I think I got the very first, I got a new haircut. It's the first time I think I've ever gotten a fade since I was maybe old enough to remember. So, you know, trying Yo, to. Yo, it's dope. I see you out here. You, you, it, 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 you look younger. Yeah. Turn around like this. Do it like this. Listen, I saw Encanto. I, I don't even cry at movies. I was at tears and tears at the end of that movie. It was so empowering. I was like, yes, I have powers. No, I don't know if that was the message I was supposed to have, but I... <laughs> I love it. That pressure song. I was like, I, I, I I'm here for this. Oh gosh. <laughs> so, so, my colleague. Go ahead, Don. I'm sorry. I'm saying Luna gives me permission to watch these things. So wow. sure, we blame the kids. That's exactly what we do. I use my little nieces and nephews to see all the kid movies. Uh, sir, here, my colleague at Bridge, Michigan. Sir, welcome to the podcast. First of all, it's your first time, but how is 2022 finding you? Thank you. Well, um, you know, I feel like it's, it's good. I'm living the dream. I still have a job despite at times being snarky on Twitter. Um, I still am healthy. So that's exciting. And my dog is behaving better. So, you know, so far, so good. I haven't watched Encanto, but I knew there was something new with you, Senator. I thought it was the glasses. I was like, oh, maybe he's like, has new frames. Maybe it's that. Or maybe you're just wearing your glasses. But yeah, I knew there was something new. I yes. rock blue like yeah, this. Gotta protect, gotta protect the eyes, you know, and all the screen time. That's right. <laughs> been a lot of screen time lately. But listen, it's time for hot takes where we run down some of the week's top headlines in the city of Detroit. Today, we only have one for hot takes because we really want to get into the conversation around redistricting. The Detroit City Council returned to general session after their holiday recess. And the big news from that is that council elected councilperson Mary Sheffield to the president's seat and councilperson James Tate to the pro Tim seat. Congratulations to them both. Donna, what say you about these two? appointments? Well, you know, listen, um, I think that um, I have more confidence in Detroit City Council now than I have in, um, in some time. I think that we have two leaders who have demonstrated their willingness to listen to Detroiters. I used to work in, in the Brightmore community and Councilman James Tate was very accessible, very engaged, and very supportive of the residents and the interests that we carried. So I have not worked in his district for a long time, but I have those great memories. And of course, Mary Sheffield is in District 5. She's been representing District 5 in her own way. She has um, been really the person to push forward a whole poverty package and say, let's work on these critical issues in our community. 
And so I'm hopeful that we're gonna see something different with a district city council than we have since uh, we formed these districts, that we have city council members who really take their responsibility as legislators and as a check on mayoral power to ensure more equity and more inclusion of residents across our city. So that's my optimism um, beginning in 2022. Let's check back next year and see you. Um, <laughs> Listen, uh, to, to Mary and James, open invitation to join us on this podcast. So uh, when when you hear it, and I hear that you listen to it, um, be sure to come on and join us. Let's talk. Yes, Let's talk absolutely. About the future. Uh, listen, if you have pieces that you want discussed on this podcast, uh, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. Again, for our future discussion this week, we are talking to our guests about the redistricting process, the new maps, and a lawsuit that is yet to be filed. Sergio, let's start with you. There are so many moving pieces to this redistricting process that you've been covering it all and doing a great job, I, if I could say so. For our listeners, can you give a brief overview and timeline of events of this process and where we are finding ourselves today? Sure. So last week, after months and months of map drawing and weeks and weeks of debates, last week, the redistricting commission voted on the three maps that are going to last for 10 years. That's one state house map, one state senate map, and one congressional map. Um, These three maps radically change or could radically change uh, the makeup of the state legislature. So when I say that, you know, the Republicans have a super have a majority in in the state legislature, um, despite receiving less of the statewide vote in the in recent elections. Right. And so they have been benefiting from from the old maps for decades. And this is truly the first time in, in, in a generation, I believe uh, that the, the Democrats have an actual chance to, to flip the Senate chamber and become the majority there. Uh, the same with the House map. And, you know, with the congressional district, Michigan is going down from 14 U.S. representatives to 13. That is because of slow population growth. And what we are seeing, and you know, with redistricting, I have to make the note, there's a lot of predictions going into this, right? Uh, we are predicting a lot of what's gonna happen because the reality is that the new districts, we haven't had a single election in those new districts. So based on predictions, we could see uh, Democrats gaining seven seats of the congressional map, in the congressional map, and Republicans uh, getting six of those. So there's a lot happening. Uh, the maps have yet to be published, but what we do know is that they uh, could become lost sometime uh, in March. And uh, that is if the courts uphold them. We already know that there is a group of black lawmakers and leaders specifically from the area of Detroit uh, that have pledged to sue the redistricting commission over the maps. They say that the maps violate the Voting Rights Act, which is the federal law that protects the Voting Rights Act of, of minority voters. And so they're saying that these maps violate th- that act and they want a court to force the redistricting commission to go back to the drawing board and redraw the districts. That lawsuit has yet to be filed as of right now. I want to bring in Tanisha on this uh, discussion because Tanisha, you plan to uh, be one of the plaintiffs 
um, in the lawsuit. And so what I'm hearing, and hopefully you can answer, I'm hearing this optimism on part of Democrats that Democrats may be able to take the majority, but I'm also hearing dissent around uh, these new legislative maps from the Black Caucus, specifically the Detroit Caucus, in in the House. So what what is the tension? What is the lawsuit? And when will it be filed? So um, so first of all, there there's no tension right now. We haven't been in session. I I don't know for sure. I've I've seen some posts where some of my colleagues seems to be thrilled about these new lines being drawn and. Um, most of my colleagues from Detroit are not thrilled. I am happy to say that we had a we took a vote today in a special meeting for the Detroit caucus and the Detroit caucus will now be um, a plaintiff in the lawsuit. So one of the reasons that it hasn't been filed as of yet because we have met with some other organizations whom I will not name, who will remain nameless until they're ready to come forward to say that they are a party to this lawsuit. So we're meeting with attorneys for diff from different major organizations um, here in Detroit to just to make sure that we have the parties that are interested at some point, and as I told the attorneys today that we are going to have to file because it's a time sensitive issue. Um, if we are going to amend complaints to add plaintiffs at a later time or add allegations at a later time that's that's fine with me, but this train has to move because it is um, is definitely a time sensitive issue. What's the main allegation right now that's that's coming up as you guys develop the lawsuit to be filed? Main uh, so the main allegation, and I apologize, can you hear me okay? I'm switching yes. over to the car. Um, the main allegation is the violation of the Voter Rights Act. Um, we all know that the Voter Rights Act was intended to protect Black, black voters. Um, it was intended to ensure that we weren't watering down the Black vote. And so that is the number one allegation is that we're watering um, or, or violating the VRA. So uh, when I look at the situation, at what I've heard um, are a couple of things. One is that the attorneys from the commission have said that if they pack Black voters into districts, that that's in violation of the Voting Rights Act because packing voters is, um, is dilutes really, well, it doesn't dilute, but it sort of concentrates us in one district and dilutes our, our involvement in others. I'm not sure if that's the exact wording. I'm sure Sergio can do a better job than I. And I know Adam has spoken to this in the past also. Um, but I also have heard that um, one of the issues is that Detroiters, Black Detroiters have not stayed in Detroit, have decentralized to many suburban communities, that Detroit's um, declining population contributes to this. How do you respond to that in your criticisms of this um, redistricting? I, I believe that, I mean, no matter what, Detroit is still a majority Black area. And when you take Detroit and you split it up and you draw a line from Detroit that goes from, um, from a Detroit district all the way to a Birmingham district or all the way to a Farmington Hills district, you still, nonetheless, you're still taken away from the, the voices of Black voters in Detroit. Um, and and one, one of the things I want to make sure that I mention is that we, we were always advocating for there to be partisan fairness. Um, we wanted there to be partisan fairness, but still have majority Black districts. And, and I'm going to leave that to the subject matter expert, Adam Ollier, to mm -hmm. um, talk about the mapping and how there were maps that did both. And they completely ignored those maps. Right. Because as Adam, as I recall, the NAACP and the ACLU had drawn alternative maps that they did not use. Is that correct? 
But there are, there are lots of options that could have been done. And, and I think the point mm -hmm. that you're making is a really important one, right? So as we talk about the city of Detroit going from, and this is just using the census numbers because we know that there, there are some inaccuracies there, but the census says that we lost, you know, between 70 and 80,000 people, right? And at the same time, the redistricting commission drew nine Senate seats in Detroit compared to five. So you lost the equivalent of an entire house, well, more than, you know, a house district and some, and you gained five house districts. So right now there are 10 state house districts that are represent a portion of the city of Detroit. We would go to 14. And that's wow. when you would say that you, in essence, lost a full seat. So when we talk about the difference between cracking, packing, and dilution, it's really important to kind of think about a thing, right? So if you're going on a trip and you say, you are overpacking that suitcase or you're packing, you're jamming something into things, it's like busting at the seams, right? It, it's just all over the place. No one would ever say half full is packing, right? Like you are not packed into a group as, a, you know, as a perfect example, women, right? So there are three men and two women here. It would not be packing to say, all right, well, <clears throat> if we broke up into a group, the two women could be in one group versus saying, all right, we're gonna put a group of two men and you know, a woman in each one and separate. So there's never a majority of you. That's really what we're talking about. We're talking about making sure that people have an opportunity to be around people like them, who look like them, who are from similar life experiences. And the only community in the entire state that the commission did not listen to in that regard were black people, right? When Latino people said, hey, please draw us in the same district in Southwest Detroit, they drew Latino people in Southwest and Downriver in the same house district, uh, to the best of their ability in the same Senate district and in the same congressional district. When the Bengali community said, hey, please draw us together, they went block by block and said, ooh, you know, Commission, we really appreciate the work that you've done, but you missed, you know, my two cousins who live three blocks over. And they were like, oh man, we got to fix that. There was even a day where they spent time talking about the Sikh community. They literally spent more time in public session talking about the Sikh community than the black community. When they wanted to talk about black okay. people at a secret meeting, uh, or well, maybe not a secret meeting. They had a behind closed doors meeting, and that was the only yeah, thing we ever talked about behind closed doors. Was wow. black like, We're not talking about them in public. No, no, no. That's the issue. Wow. wow. So the well, newspapers are, have not been getting that story right. You know what I'm saying? And the way the newspapers, a lot of the news media has been portraying the issue is that black legislators are acting in self-interest to try to protect their own districts. But as I recall, some of you like um. Honorable Tanisha Yancey, you're not running against your term limited. So this is not about you, is it? Absolutely not about me. And I have heard that statement a, a few times. Like, you don't have a dog in a fight. You're not even running for re-election. You're term limited. However, I, as I stated yesterday, I'm a Black woman. I'm a Black legislator, a Black attorney. And Black people are being in, disenfranchised. I have a dog in a fight. I do. Yeah. And, and, and I want to make sure that I'm, I'm really clear. I... I, I know that these lines don't affect my future goals mm -hmm. at all, at mm -hmm. all. If you're running for a countywide seat, if you're running for um, a citywide seat or something of that nature, city council, we have some city council members, former legislators who are on. This doesn't affect them. These right. lines don't affect city council seats at all. But we still have litigants uh, or, or plaintiffs to this lawsuit that are, are they realize that if it affects one or two of our, our it affects us all. That's right. right? That's right. Um, and so to water down black votes, then what, what I do, what I will say is 
it's funny to me how Democrats come to our aid when it comes to protecting Black voters in a certain way. So they will protect Black voters, but they are not willing to ensure that Black voters have Black representation. As long as they have Democratic representation, that seems to be all that matters right now. Well, Felicia, um, that's, that's, the tension, that's the tension that I was trying to allude to earlier. I know that you guys aren't in session, but there is indeed a tension there. What is your message to your fellow Democrats? Adam, what is your message to your fellow Democrats who are excited about a potential edge in, in the state chambers, uh, but doesn't seem to share your concern around the disenfranchisement of Black voters, especially in Southeast Michigan? Well, that, that's a funny question for me to be able to answer. So I'm one of the co-chairs for the Senate Campaign Committee, right? It's literally my job to take the majority. So on the one hand, I'm like, yes, for the first time literally in my lifetime, there's a clear path to take the majority. Uh, but as I talk to everybody, it's important to note that that, that was not done by diluting black voters. It was actually made more difficult. So when we talk about communities and the spaces across the metropolitan area, the national narrative is that black, packing black people into communities uh, is how Republicans kept dominance. To some extent, that, that has worked in some places, but that's not what happened in, in Wayne, Oakland, and Macomb County. Racism which Donna you know, knows about and talks about and calls out is the reason that black people live in one space, right? The reason there are less black people in Macomb County is because of housing discrimination. The reason there are less black people in, in a lot of these communities is housing discrimination. So to get the population of black people to a small enough percentage to be a minority in a district requires diluting black voters and stretching districts out into other democratic communities. And I mean, we all know this. There is not a single Republican majority community adjacent to a majority black community because they don't want to live next to black people, right? So if you look out into this space, there is always a buffer community of white folks that are, you know, of a different social economic status to buffer in between that black community. And so when Tanisha talks about going all the way up to Birmingham, you know, my district starts at the base of the Detroit River and goes all the way up to Clawson to include a precinct in Royal Oak and in Troy and Sterling Heights. It's got to go through a lot of places to get away from black folks and get enough white people to make black people a minority in the city of Detroit. They also have to cut the city of Detroit into small spaces. And so we attribute we got partisan fairness in the Senate map by splitting Ann Arbor, by drawing a, uh, you know, a Midland Bay City Saginaw district. It's not in the city of Detroit. And so it's really important that we talk about those kind of things and really address those kind of things. And I think people like Sergio have talked about that, but it is a more complicated discussion, right? Like he writes 10 articles about uh, redistricting and it's in five of them, but the article that people read is the one associated to the Fox News or, or the you know 30 second clip that says, black legislators, black elected officials are worried about black power. And that headline is right. Right. It is Tanisha and I's responsibility to ensure that black people are empowered. And that is self-interested because as black people, we are most concerned about black people and black issues, because if we're not looking at them, nobody else is. And I think it's fair to say that there are some issues, many issues in our state that are black issues that transcend Republican and Democrats. Right. We had emergency management in Detroit's public schools under a Democratic governor. We've had certain types of things take place in our state where Black people have been disproportionately affected, differently impacted than other Democrats in the state. And so this suggestion that just having a Democratic representative means that Black people are protected is a little bit um, inaccurate, <laughs> to say the least. 
Um, where do you weigh in on this, Sergio? What are your thoughts about this? Um, what have you seen? Yeah, I mean, I, this conversation is super important because I do think that it goes a little bit deeper into how multi-layered this whole discussion is. It is very nuanced. And it not, it's not just about Senator Ollier and Representative Yancey being upset about this or, or, or you know, other activists or whatnot. It truly is about representation. That's the reason why we're here, right? When we draw lines, we're talking about representation. We're talking about the people who will advocate for your well-being, um, truly who will advocate for the betterment of your livelihood, of, of how you live your life or how you relate with your neighbors. So it is a very <clears throat> serious, serious issue. I, I do think that, you know, something that we've tried to explain, and I'm going to try my best here to, to explain it uh, briefly, but, but it is this idea of majority minority districts and also opportunity districts, quote unquote, right? So when we're talking about majority minority districts, we're talking about districts that over 51% of the population is part of a minority group. So in the case of a lot of the Detroit districts, it's uh, black voters who represent the majority. I mean, there are districts that have 95, 94%, they're 94% black. So they, the, the black voters make the population in that district. What are you now, talking about? I'm sorry, just to, just to insert a little bit of nuance here. What are you talking about when you say majority black? Are you talking about in population or in voting age? The That's a great question. The black voting age population. So the, the people that are 18 and over, they make up over over 51% because the reality is that children don't, don't vote. So that's a great question. So moving from there, then we're talking about opportunity districts, which are districts where the, a specific minority group, they don't make uh, over 50% of the population. But when you add crossover votes, which are like white voters who might vote with the black group or white voters who might uh, vote with the Latino group, they elect the candidate of choice of the black or the Latino group. Now, that is a handful, but I do think it's important to talk about that because uh, what the commission has said they're doing is that by reducing the number of majority minority districts, they are creating more opportunity districts and more opportunities for the candidate of choice of minority groups to get elected. However, the commission used general election data, right? So for sure, Democrats, a white Democrat will vote for the candidate that is, you know, the candidate that is running on the general election, regardless if it's white or black or whatever, right? Black and whites and Latinos and other groups are going to vote for the same Democratic candidate in the general election. So truly in some districts, specifically in the Detroit districts and some districts in Flint, for example, it is in the primary, the primary serves as the general election, right? And that's where, where it matters here because the, the commission used general election data because they said they, they don't have a lot of um, data from competitive statewide primaries. So to that end, sure, in the district of Senator Ollier, there's gonna be a Democrat who's gonna win. However, it might not be the Democrat that is preferred by the black candidates the way it's drawn now, if that makes sense. So it ha we have to talk about this nuance and it is complicated and it is messy and muddy and, and all that, but we have to talk about that to understand how this process played out and why some people are upset and there is a genuine concern that we might not have the same amount of black lawmakers in Lansing in the next cycle because of the way the maps were drawn today. And what I think is important is Sergio has you know reported about a couple places where a similar thing happened. And, and I know there is a, a space in California, maybe it was clear where the, there's a space in California 
where they did this with the Latina community. They, you know, they cut the percentage down and like no person of color was surprised, a white man won that district and won it every single time. And they're like, you know what? Maybe we should redraw it. And they are plussing that district back up in California because you took a community that for the first time was able to elect a person of their community and was then no longer able to do so. And we talk about black issues and black people and black communities. It makes a difference to have somebody who looks like you representing you. And Detroit, by and large, is the only place that that is possible. So there are black people all across the state, but they do not live in uh, concentrated enough areas to ever elect candidates they're choosing, right? So aside from Detroit and the Detroit metropolitan area, there are no black senators. And there have only been a handful of black senators that are not from majority black districts. Senator Erica Geis and Senator Bill Hardiman, who was, you know, a Republican. Uh, but it's not like these things happen commonly or for, you know, in frequency. It's a real right. problem. Exactly. And you know, I, I want to jump in just because my district in particular, um, for, first of all, I am, Brian Banks is probably, the, if I'm not mistaken, as the lawns are drawn currently, the first Black um, representative in that district. I'm the first Black female representative in that district. And it was it was really a struggle, especially when we talk about that they use the, the data from the general election to make sure that they, um, and I'm sorry, I know I got music in the background, but they use the data from the general election. I wouldn't have gotten, I wouldn't have gotten elected in my general election had I not been for the Detroiters in my primary election to push me through. Um, when Gross Point had options, they chose other options. They, they were on, and I said this, and I don't know if they, they aired it, but I said this in my interview yesterday that there was Facebook comments that there was only two intelligent women to choose from in my race. So from the onset, they had already discredited me. I wouldn't have made it to the general election and that's the data that was used in this event. Right. This is, oh, just to jump in real quick, for for um, Representative Yancey's race, we, we actually run those numbers. And in that primary in 2017, uh, Reb Yancey got 2,215 votes, and the runner-up, who was a white woman, got 2,017 votes. So it was just a difference of about 200 votes there. And, and that's when we talk about, right, the importance of drawing districts that truly give the, the, the Black voters or the minority voters the chance to elect someone in the primary, because that person is the one who will become the de facto rep in the general election. It almost feels as though colorblindness is the, the, the stance they decided to take with respect to Black people. The, the Black people as a community of interest did not really exist outside of being Democrats and being able to win other people over as Democrats. But there was this colorblindness despite evidence of racism. We decide we're going to be colorblind in our solutions and pretend as though people do not make decisions based on race in elections every single time. Um, and that's unfair to candidates, it's unfair to black people to assume that um, people are voting in, in best interest because you have so many instances of white people choosing white over party in our, in our nation. And then you also talk about the whole issue of the contested primaries and the primary being the general election. Um, it, it's, is it that they're naive or they choose not to see what's happening? Because they, they Sergio, they they draw these maps with legal counsel, especially with regard to making sure that they are supposed to be in line with the Voting Rights Act. How does that come into play? 
Yeah, I mean, they've been following the advice of a voting rights attorney and a partisan fairness expert who have told the commission, hey, you can lower the percentage of Black voting residents below 50% and you can still be compliant with the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and so at the end of the day, this commission is made up of 13 residents like you and I who like, you know, have never drawn a district before. They're, most of them are not lawyers. Most of them are not, I mean, none of them draw maps for a living. Um, they're not geographers or demographers. So they are following the advice of the, the hired experts, the people that they trust, right? And so we have to understand that too. But but to, to that question of like how that played a role, I mean, that informed, that advice informed everything right, that we knew that at the beginning, uh, the voting rights attorney, Bruce Adelson, had told the commission to not draw districts over 45% uh, African-American to be mm -hmm. compliant. And then uh, weeks later, he came back and said, actually, you can draw, uh, you can draw districts up to 55% Black as long as they are uh, representing communities of interest and all that. And as soon as he said that, he gave that advice, the commission redraw some maps and created uh, majority black districts of a population of over 50%. So everything that this, that this commission did was based on the advice they received from their experts. But, but how was the expert bad selected? Advice. I, but, I, but, I believe that I read some controversy about that. Bad advice, but, like, but I, very bad advice. Right, but how was that expert selected? I guess, as I recall, there was an attorney who was being considered by the commission. I don't know if this is Adelson, who had previous experience advising gerrymandering, um, a gerrymandering process in other states. Is that true? Or does he have a good civil rights record? So Bruce Adelson was the voting rights attorney of the Arizona Independence Redistricting Commission. So he, okay. he has experience representing and truly his role is to make sure that the maps are compliant with the Voting Rights Act. Whether that is good advice or bad advice, which I heard you senators say that it was bad advice, I guess that's up. That's up to a court to, to decide. Right, well, it's changing not, it's advice not, at the very least. If he said forty five percent at one point, right, sure, fifty five percent at another point. How can I trust him when he's given two specific targets? And it seems as though that's very specific to say up to this amount and up to that amount. Um, there's no limit on how many white people are. are. There limits on how many white people can be in a district. Does he say you know what you can only have? 45% white people in a district, or is that just something that he does um, on our honestly, behalf? Honestly, his argument was basically that you couldn't have, I mean, it, it really was that reverse space, right? Like, because if they cap black population at 45%, it really makes it difficult to have a white population less than 60, you know, less than 60%, less than, you know, th those kind of spaces. So it, it's really, the issue that we had was that he changed his advice in a substantive way after the map drawing process was almost all done. So it only gave them a day and a half to draw house maps. If he had given them the advice that he ultimately came back to, the maps in the city of Detroit would look fundamentally different. The maps across the state would look relatively same, but black people would be significantly better off. And that's the, the big challenge, which is why I was like, it's bad advice. What's the language in the Voting Rights Act that the lawsuit is gonna cite, um, Tanisha, in terms of the, you know, it being violated. 
Is there a specific language that we're looking at that we that the public we're, needs to be aware I think of? the more the one part that we're focused on the most is not that it's not about the results of what happened. It, I mean, it's not about their intent. It's about the results, and so everybody, everyone thinks that because they didn't, they they can maybe say that they didn't have intentions on making sure that black electeds don't get reelected or get um, in, back into office. That's not what the, what the Voter Right Act actually says. It actually says it's the results that we're looking at. And, and, and I know that there's gonna be some arguments that say, say that we are able to get um, black people elected, but we're not gonna sit around and wait to see if that happens when we know that the majority black districts have been drawn out. Um, so instead of waiting to see whether or not we can still be elected and not, and I say we loosely because I do not want to come back to Lansing, but I, I, I said, oh, so that's news. So that means you're not going, you're not trying to run for Senate either. Okay. Thank you. No, for we, we, say, we, say, we said that in the beginning for everyone who says that this is our own self-interest. I, you know, if, if it just so happened that wait, they redraw the, the maps and I'm the only one in the Senate seat. And that's not why I'm advocating at all, because <laughs> that's just not where I want to be. It's not where I want to be. I guess my question is, my question is, is there precedence? Is there evidence that there should have been a limit of 55% even? Is there a precedence for that? So what, what the courts have routinely said is that you need to do the analysis to ensure that a district will accommodate a the electing the candidate of a minority group's choosing right so in some places they have actually plus that number well above 55 percent because uh for whatever reason either the population is younger or more transient or, or vote at lower numbers right so the analysis is really important which is why i said they got bad advice right so in their voting rights expertise uh, uh, and their voter analysis stuff they list senator marshall bullock as a white man and talk about how you know that shows that there is not the same level of racially polarized voting because a white man was the candidate of the choosing for black people, showing that there is not racially polarized voting, right? Is, so, is there yeah. like a skin color test, a paper bag test, or something? What? what? I'm, I'm just trying to understand. I don't even. It was just. And if it, it was, was a, I would think that he's more Asian than anything. Uh, <laughs> you know what? I'm just. I'm no, listening. Has no, anybody told him he's white? Because I don't know. He doesn't. We're going to try and stay out of let us not get into the colorism. Let you know. I'm, I'm a know, Listen, listen. I can, I can, I can make that joke, okay? Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but, but all I'm saying is that that, that the, the, the the you know we listen to people say no quotas, no quotas, no quotas. That there's no numerical number that makes sense, and yet you put a racial target, a numerical target on how, but what percentage? Rather than saying. Let's look and see what makes sense. It's offensive to me, quite honestly, to say that you have to have this many black people in a district. What if by some strange you know, calculus, we just all ended up in a district shaped area that made sense as a community of interest. You gotta break us up because there's too many black people in the room. And I'm actually, sorry, that's the, yeah. that, that, that feels wrong. And I know that there's the intent of packing. Packing is intentional, right? Packing is when we force people together. But when you say, no more than 55%, it's really saying that we're limiting Black participation as a group, Black participation as a community of interest. And maybe I'm reading that the wrong way, but if that was not also the conclusion for every other group of people, then it seems to me to be racist on its face. And, and I'm not an attorney, me, but that's just my feeling. 
let me jump in here and put a pin on that because we got to let Representative Yancey go. But before we let you go, Representative Yancey, we know that uh, the Detroit caucus is going to be named in the lawsuit, and that's one area of recourse. I'm seeing another strategy on part of Debbie Dingle. She's moving to run in another district. Are is is the is the Detroit caucus or the Black caucus within uh, the Michigan Democratic Party pursuing both of these at once, walking and chewing gum at the same time? Are we you're going to court, but are we also considering strategies around figuring I got to buy a house? So each individual, each individual person, and I see, you know, there are some members are who are actually planning to relocate. Um, and so each individual member have to make that decision on their own. Do they want to run against, uh, you know, their white counterpart in Oakland County and share that district? Or do they want to move and, and maybe run in a district that may be an open seat? And that's up to each individual person. Um, there hasn't been any strategy, I will say, from the Detroit caucus members, um, and I'm still we're we're still waiting to have a Michigan Black caucus meeting to discuss these issues. Representative Felicia Yancey, thank you so much for joining us on Authentically Detroit. We appreciate you coming by. You got to come by again. Yes, thank you. I absolutely will. Anytime, I'll make sure that I I clear my entire hour the next time. Thank you for understanding. Right, no thank problem. You. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Uh, Donna, you were you were making a point. We had to get her off. Oh, no, 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 I understand. No, I'm just making the point that when you make a race-based argument that this is how many you can have inside of a district, even when it's well-meaning, even when your intentions are good, we're not looking at intentions. Um, if we had the same maps and nobody had been given advice, no more than 45%, that would be different to me. But it's actually offensive to me that somebody had that conversation and gave that kind of legal advice. Um, so it feels to me as though that's an interpretation that is um, a pretty racist interpretation based on a set of assumptions that should not be made. I mean, this attorney does not have the ability to determine what happens when you have no more than 45% of people in a district other than this is his bias and his this is his assumption about what's going to happen in that district. Why not listen to the people in the district? Why not allow it to be maybe some you have 40%, some you have 60%, some you have 62%, some you have 30%. I don't know, but just this number feels weird. And, and you're right in that regard. And, and I think that was what the what people, you know, talked about it and how you saw those kind of things grow and develop. And I think that kind of continued movement and discussion is reason that he backtracked from his statement so hard of 45% to 55% in the last couple of days. But that in of its face is one of the challenges I, I think to the, the legal piece is race was the primary means of them drawing the maps in the city of Detroit. And you saw that because that's how they did it, right? There is some, there is a lot of legal precedent about what packing is and that that number could be 60, 70%, but there is something to be said for in allowing black people to be able to elect somebody. And these maps just flat out don't do that. So that, that continues to be the issue. And when we talk about why that's so relevant is because the commission asked for feedback from everybody across the state and the overwhelming majority of the feedback that they got from you know people like you, Donna, people from your organization, from your neighborhood, is draw districts that allow people from a community to represent themselves and to be empowered, right? So there's a difference between saying, all right, well, we're going to make Detroit into you know one Senate, you know three Senate seats because they could do that, versus saying we're going to make Detroit into nine Senate seats where Detroit is a minority in each one, right? Like that—that's really what we were pushing back against and continue to push back against is this idea that 
some places across the country, when they decrease the percentage, they in, they actually increase the number of districts, right? So right now we have five majority black districts in the Senate. And if they had said, all right, man, well, we're going to draw nine districts or, you know, nine districts that are 40 plus percent black or, you know, high 30s, you know, a 60, a 70, a 40, a, you know, a 50 and, and spread that, that out, then we would actually have the opportunity to elect more spaces. But what they did was they said, hey, you got five. We're going to give you five at a lower percent and we're going to spread you out in these other spaces and you're going to make no difference. That's not a better deal. What do you say to the average Detroiter who may not be um, as plugged into this process, but votes um, uh, in, in the elections and, and perhaps maybe likes to see someone who looks like them representing uh, their communities uh, in the state house and in the state Senate, but sending legislators to Lansing who have marginal power um, and marginal influence, uh, the Detroit caucus in the house, the state legis the state Senate house. Um, what do you say to people who are like, well, you know, I'm not seeing results anyway. Let's try this great experiment that the redistricting commission has come up with because the people that I've been sending to Lansing that look like me aren't bringing the results home that I need. Well, it sounds like what they're concerned about is Democrats being in the minority. And certainly it's great that the commission allowed for an opportunity to draw Senate Dems in the majority, but they didn't address partisan fairness in the House, right? Like they didn't draw maps in the House that the committee, the party that wins the most votes will win. They drew maps that are a little bit fair in the House, right? Like this is a turn. This has become a turnout discussion. And in their argument, they made the point that now black voters in Detroit are going to be able to flip these seats. They're not. They didn't draw seats that black voters in Detroit are now going to be able to shift from being Republican to Democrat. They drew districts that now, instead of electing an option from Detroit that is typically black, you now have the option to fight with someone in Oakland County on whether or not, or Macomb County, on whether or not you're going to elect a black person or a white person. But it's not like you're like, are, are we going to elect a Democrat or a Republican? They're not those kind of districts that were drawn. So I don't know what to do with my hands, Ricky Bobby. Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, it seems to me as though um, it's sort of this um, this premise that's you know erroneous that you can have both. I think what I heard you say is that there were ways to achieve a Democratic majority in the state Senate. Um, there's pathways that included um, black districts, more black representation, and in fact, those pathways from your analysis are easier than these pathways. So when you're giving these people the, these false choices, well, either you're going to have representation, and that's what I keep reading, either you're going to have balanced representation at the state house, or you're going to dilute the black representation. It feels, um, you know, just a little bit unfair. And that's Did always a conversation that? we have when we talk about black power and black spaces and, you know, black and brown folks, right? Like every one of us have been in a room where they're like, oh, you're in this room because you're a colored person. It's like, no, bro, I'm in this room because I'm the best. And and that is the difference that we're talking about, where the commission and people like that are saying, well, if the black candidate or if the black community work really hard, they too will be able to elect a candidate. Not that the odds or the numbers or the things make it as likely as it would be the case. And that's the that's the piece that we're talking about is if white people in these races got only white people to vote for them, they win. If black people got only black people to vote for them, we lose. 
right? And, and that's that's the difference. Right now, right now, you can win a race in one of these seats, and if black people vote for you, you're gonna win, right? So when Rep. Yancey was talking about her race, black people voted for her, she won. You know, when uh, we looked at the Senate race between Senator Betty Jean Alexander and David Knesset, black people voted for Betty Jean Alexander, and white people voted for David Knesset, and there are more black people, so the black candidate won, right? And in none of these districts will that be possible, so the difference in who can get elected is also different, right? There is a reason that President Obama got crushed by Bobby Rush. It was because black folks were looking for somebody just a little bit blacker in that congressional district, and that's what Bobby Rush told him. And Bobby Rush is still a congressman and an excellent congressman in the South Side of Chicago. But President Obama was able to better you know, build coalitions amongst non-black candidates, non-black people, and was able to rise and do other things. And so when we talk about who can now win these seats, it is now no longer just people who black people are comfortable with. To be a black elected official, you have to be someone who white people will also co-sign on. And there is a, I fundamentally think there are a lot of problems with that as an idea. And you know, I know Sergio would, would echo those same kind of things as we talk about the Latino community. Like it's a very different ball game to be able to say, hey man, if my people are with me, I can win versus saying, I have to subjugate a number of the wills and wants of my people to get these other people on board. I also think that, you know, um, at the end of the day, and I wanna stress this out, this is a predictive game in a way, right? Um, we don't truly know how these districts will perform based on the current population that we have now because we haven't run a single race there yet. But I do think all of these concerns are very fair. You know, I find it fascinating too, uh, just to add something here real quick, is that we have seen all these discussions happen in public, right? And so we have more information and, and it's it's easier for us to understand, huh, this is the advice the commission is receiving from these attorneys, right? And this is why they got to this conclusion. In the past, we haven't seen that. It was through court records and lawsuits that we saw how Republicans were truly gerrymandering them democratic districts and truly were trying not to be super obvious about how they drew a certain district because they, in case they got sued, right? So it is super interesting that the reason we're here today having this conversation is because we were able to observe the whole process and we have an idea of what was the advice that the attorneys uh, gave the commission. The, the other point I just want to make is that today, uh, shameless plug, but we did a story at Bridge Michigan about how there's this growing discontent about, um, uh, between Democrats over, over these maps. And it, it is putting, this whole situation is putting a lot of Democrats in a very unique situation, right? And I, and I know based on my reporting that there's a lot of Democrats that have been tiptoeing around the issue and are not sure what to say. They are excited about the potential of having a supermajority, but they're also a little bit upset about this whole thing, and they're trying to weigh what's better, either. I mean, this you, had, or that. you have Lavore Barnes not really taking a side. You got Jonathan Kinlock right. coming and saying, "Hey, let's figure out a strategy." Can you? I want to. Sorry, I want to also ask you this. Donna uh, levied a critique on media around the framing sure. how we've been framing. Um, this process specifically around uh, when the uh, Citizens Redistricting Commission had that closed door meeting. Can you talk about the work that we have been doing at the center of Bridge Michigan and Bridge Detroit, especially in suing for 
the for the those records to become public in that closed door. Yeah, and you know, it is a fair criticism. And I, I'm the first one, and the senator here knows that every time I get a criticism about the reporting or the framing, I really try to listen and, and try to figure out if there's a way to improve it and, and try to, to understand here the point. I do think before we go into the lawsuit, I do think that the reality is that it is such a complex issue that it is almost impossible as reporters to cover everything in a story. I work for a place that allows me to write 1300 words. And so I, I have maybe more space than some of my other colleagues, but all my other colleagues covering redistricting have spent eight hours, nine hours of, of you know meeting time, watching that so that the general public don't have to sit there. And, and so I do think there are ways for improvement. And clearly, I think as I look back, there are things that I would have done different in terms of the reporting, but I do think we tried our best to explain a really complex issue that is not super sexy and that the majority of the residents, the reality is, are not reading them. They're not reading our stories about redistricting. That is the and truth. That, that's fact. We get the numbers. Yeah, and that is that is truth. And so, yeah. but but to that, to that end, you know, we really, um, when the commission met behind closed doors, they had told us that they were doing it to discuss these voting rights memos. And right away, uh, I and some of my other colleagues realized that this was super fishy first, and also that why are you going to discuss issues that impact Black and brown folks who are always the one getting the worst part of every process in every government? gubernatorial system, why are you discussing that behind closed doors? And so uh, Bridge, Michigan was one of the first ones to like send a letter to the commission. My, you know, uh, John Bebo, our CEO of the Center for Michigan and Bridge, Michigan, as well as my editor, we sent a letter to the commission telling the commission, hey, please make these documents public. The commission said no. And then Bridge, Michigan and the Detroit Free Press, the Detroit News and the Michigan Press Association, we banned it and we sued the commission because a, we have this responsibility of fighting on behalf of the people's right to know, but also people voted for a transparent process. And when we talk about transparency, we're talking about all of it, the good and the bad, the pretty and the ugly. And maybe, you know, uh, there was nothing revelatory in those in those memos that we that we found truly, besides the fact that the commission and the attorneys were talking more candidly about specific groups, about the Michigan AFL-CIO, they were talking more candidly about promote my vote, who had also submitted maps that gave a Democratic majority, but still provided uh, the opportunity to have more Black majority districts. And it, those two maps uh, presented by the AFL-CIO AFL and promote my vote, they were very popular among Detroit residents and among Southeast Michigan voters and residents in other parts. And the commission chose not to incorporate those because there were conversations that if you did incorporate those maps, they were going to be political because these were interest groups, right? So, you know, I think that it was because of the media that we had access to these um, to these documents. And so um, I do think for sure we need to do better. Um, I do think that part of doing better is also uh, being able to explain how nuanced and complicated this issue is and be able to be open to the people and explaining that to them. Um, and I do think that at the end of the day, you know, redistricting is inherently political. Like, it is political. You have Republicans and Democrats jockeying over this. You have progressives and conservatives trying to have their best here. So it is political. But what matters here is that we have to zoom in in the impact it will have on people. And that is everyday people, right? And what happens when they don't have representation. And in, in, in particular for us, 
black people, right? Because Voting Rights Act was um, written as a remedy to historic and systemic injustice against black people. And when people oppress, they rarely go out and say, you know what, I'm gonna oppress you. A lot of times they don't even intentionally oppress you. But what they do is they operate out of a set of assumptions, a, a racist worldview that they don't even consider racist that ends up being oppressive anyway. And so right. the idea that you had to go behind closed doors to have conversations about black folks is, um, is, is, is poisonous to me, right? And the fruit of a poisonous tree cannot be healthy fruit. If you are having a conversation about black folks, because even though maybe nothing came out new in that conversation, you know what also didn't happen? We didn't get to speak back. We didn't get to give our input directly at the time they were having those conversations. We were silenced. We were not allowed to be engaged in that dialogue. It was a way of shutting down black conversation of the conversation of people advocating for us. So I have concerns about that, that I think as much as I want to see this play out and I, listen, I was a big fan of it. I voted for proposal to whatever I voted. I was, we were involved. My organization got funding to get people out there to draw maps and discuss communities of interest and build awareness. So on the east side of Detroit, we are engaged in reading these stories and keeping, we talked about it. We had our staff retreat and it came up with, in our staff retreat, redistricting is being talked about in our neck of the woods. Senator Ollier came and talked to us and helped explain the significance of that. But I think it's important that we um, don't just give people the benefit of the doubt, that we have high standards. You can't fix racism without intentionality, right? So if you are unintentionally racist, that doesn't mean that you are not racist. If you are making decisions that say, this is how many Black people can show up, or this is how many Black people can be included, I have an issue with that. Um, the other thing that I want to um, speak to is another related to the question that Orlando raised a little bit earlier, and that was about people saying, you know what, I'm not happy with what's going on with the Democratic Party right now, because you're absolutely right. With these maps, if they stand, people who run for office representing Black people are going to have to work extra hard to win. You're going to have to work extra hard, first of all, to get more Black people out to vote, because right now a whole lot of people aren't voting. And a lot of people aren't voting because they don't see that anybody is standing up for them. There's so many things that are not on the agenda right now. We are in the midst of a housing crisis, but who's fighting hard for that? And it's getting worse. It's not getting better. How many evictions have taken place over this past month after the eviction moratoriums have been lifted? And how many people are in some part of the eviction timeline? How many new housing units are we building for low-income people and families in our community? We have so many issues that are so significant right now, and we need our Black representatives to be talking those issues and fighting our fights. And you got to fight them harder now if those maps prevail. So what I'm hoping is no matter what happens, because we've been set back before, that you will fight harder and that you will make sure that you are speaking in such a way and acting in such a way that Detroiters know they are represented and they are going to show up. So if we're only 40%, and remember, they're talking about 40%, as I recall, of likely voters. Is that the correct expectation, or is it 40% of voting age people? Voting age people. Okay. So we don't even know if they're registered to vote. We need to get all of those voting age people out, because the reality is, even if you look at just the number of people and you just have gross numbers, I believe, and I may not be correct, that Black Detroiters are voting at a lower rate than other people in our communities. Right. So the numbers, the disproportionality is greater than just, you know, whatever the numbers they threw out came out with. Is that true? 
No question. And when you talk about the housing issue, that is also a voting issue, right? So you have to be registered to vote in the precinct that you live in, right? So if you are experiencing housing insecurity, if you're doing some of these kind of things, you have the kind of issues that are more concentrated amongst poor black folks, right? Like it makes it much more difficult to vote. It makes it much more difficult to have these kind of issues. And when we talk about the overall condition of these spaces, it's a layered issue that we've got to talk about. And the reason that the percentage of the voting population is such a, supposed to be such an important analysis is because it could say 55% isn't large enough, right? It is not to say that it is supposed to be an upward cap or a lower cap. It's supposed to be, this is the analysis that we've seen in this community is what is necessary to win versus another community. Right. So, you know, I know we're going to be in a, in a difficult space. And so it's really important that everybody lean in and elect black folks, right? So when pe we talk about these kind of issues, what is the answer if you care about black issues? Elect black people to, to be in these kind of spaces, work on black issues, go and find somebody, recruit a black candidate, right? So it's not just, all right, hey, Orlando's black, I'm gonna vote for Orlando. It's, hey, I know Orlando, I'm gonna convince Orlando to run and I'm gonna work on him and help him with his campaign, right? Like it's finding someone, yeah, I know Orlando. You know, it's but, finding but it's also, but it's, it's beyond that, right? It's also making sure that the people who are elected are, are acting on behalf of the people that they represent. And, and, and that is, sure that that is the disconnect. What we need to have happen inside of our community, because quite honestly, it hasn't always been the case. We got midterms coming up, and uh, there is there is there is widespread discontentment on part of Black folks for the Democratic Party. What is the messaging, and what is the answer that transcends local, regional, state, and federal uh, electoral politics? And so it's you know. This conversation could go on, but <laughs> we we are we are over our hour. We promised, I guess, that we would be here for an hour. So uh, this conversation will continue. There's definitely more to come. Adam, Sergio, you have to agree to come back if we need you All back right. to talk about uh, any more of the developments. And if you have topics that you want discussed on our podcast, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Authentically Detroit. Or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. Uh, anybody got shout outs? Donna, Adam, Sergio, who you want to shout out in this new year, 2022? Ooh, I want to shout out my wife. Uh, this is the 15th year anniversary of her saying yes uh, to being my girlfriend. So very exciting times. We've been married 10 years, but we've been together. And you would keep years. track of that. You kept track of the the day actually. Yes. Girlfriend. Will you go with me? Yeah. Will you 100%. Will you go will with you me? Go with me? Yes. You like me? Do we go together? Check yes or yes, no. Yes. As a matter of fact, uh my daughter was like, Daddy, what are we doing for story time? I was like, look, we don't have time to read a whole book. She said, well, will you just tell me a story? I told her the story about how me and her mom met. So, yeah, oh. I'm very excited. I'm grateful. I'm a very grateful man. Oh, you know what? I am I'm grateful for you because, you know what? Anytime somebody can tell you when somebody say, yes, I will go with you. Not even, yes, I will marry you. Yes, I will go with you. Yes, yes we can go together. That's so... But it's all Adam Oli. I'm, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised at all. Sergio, you have any shout outs? I love that. Um, well, I guess I'm going to shout out my husband. You know, he is married to a, to a journalist and he has had to also endure hours of redistricting meetings for the last few months. And so, yeah, shout out to him. Uh, hats off to Sergio's husband. For, you know, it's not easy. It's not easy to have a significant other that's a journalist.
at all. No. Yeah, not at all. Donna, you have any shout outs? I don't have to shout out my husband at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's not easy. Thank you for saying yes, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> or thank you for asking. <laughs> And you know what? Listen, it's been about two years since we got engaged. Oh, we got engaged. About two years? What's the, what's the specific date? Come on now. Donna's a Virgo. She's supposed to know this. It was December 24th. I believe it was 2019. The years get confusing. Yeah, it was 19 because you got married in 2020. You had a COVID wedding. Yeah, yeah we had a COVID oh, wedding. Nice. So, yeah. you know, but, um, but you know, Listen, I work a lot of hours and all during the break, I've been planning this staff retreat. And so he's been watching documentaries with me and having <laughs> conversations with me. Like, what do you think if we do this? And what do you think if we do that? And he's just, you know, always gives great advice. and has great insight into all of this. Like, okay, Donna, don't do that. That sounds condescending. I'm like, really? Okay, I won't do that. <laughs> well, or like... I don't have a spouse to shout out. Um, <laughs> Ready to get to work. But, uh, you know, Adam, you're an avid listener. I know you listen at like warp speed, but I did shout out my significant other for our last uh, episode. And I'll shout her out again, just to stay along the trends, to stay you with the trend. You can never do it too often. Uh, she told me that she... She she had no idea. She listened. She almost cried at the end of the episode, Donna, when I gave her a shout out. Um, I also want to shout out uh, this reinvigorated Detroit City Council. We're watching you, but we are cautiously optimistic. But we watch it. We watch it. <laughs> we want to thank everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Happy New Year. And as always, we want you to catch the wave.